Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. A couple of quick notes first. Now, while I usually do post on the first and third Monday of each month, as I said in my introduction, for this month and this month only, I'll only be posting one podcast on the first Monday. Uh, That's the one you're listening to right now. But there will not be one on the third Monday. Uh, So just one for December. I'm just taking a little holiday break. But I'll be back to two podcasts a month starting in January 2021. The second thing is I now have a sponsor, the Remember Reading Podcasts, which you'll be hearing more about just before the interview. And speaking of which, today I'm going to be interviewing Amy Hest. She's author of The Summer We Found the Baby, among many other books, and we're going to be talking about the middle grade novel Dear Mr. Henshaw by Beverly Cleary. But first, as always, I'm going to start with a poem. This one is called Promises, and it was written by David A. Anderson. Promises Dear Daddy, I'm sorry I did not do what you told me to do. If I do better, can I still be your little boy? Dear son, you will be my little boy for all of your little boy days. And when you are no longer a little boy, I will still be your daddy. Dream Gardens is sponsored by the Remember Reading Podcast. Do you remember those children's books you loved to read and reread for hours on end, and maybe still do? Books like Charlotte's Web, Goodnight Moon, Amelia Bedelia, or The Bridge to Terabithia? Find out the real stories behind these beloved classics and more in the Remember Reading podcast. In each episode of Remember Reading, you'll hear from award-winning authors like Meg Cabot, Catherine Patterson, Louis Sacker, and others as they delve into the story behind each story. Whether you're a teacher, librarian, writer, illustrator, or just someone who loves children's books, discover the magic behind your favorite kidlet at rememberreading.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. My guest today is Amy Hest, author of many books such as Remembering Mrs. Rossi, When Charlie Met Grandpa, The Dog Who Belonged to No One, and Letters to Leo. Her latest novel is The Summer We Found the Baby. You can find her website at www.amyhess.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Amy. Thank you so much. As I mentioned, your your latest book, a novel, is The Summer We Found the Baby. Can you talk a little bit of what that book is about? This book is about three kids who find a baby on the steps of the New Children's Library. Uh, the Action takes place during World War II in a very small town on the eastern part of Long Island. And it's it's based on very loosely on some family history, some World War II family history. Uh, my dad was a soldier in World War II, and a lot of my uncles um, fought in World War II, and I'm very tuned into that period of time. And um, and I, I like being in that 40s period. I was born in 1950, but I, I feel very connected to the 40s somehow. So I, it was important to me to place this story in the 40s in the U.S. in wartime. So this is a very uh, personal story because it has that family connection to you. Mm-hmm. 
all of my stories are very personal. I disguise myself in all, but I'm in all of my books. Um, and they're all about me, every one of them in some way. Nobody would know that unless you know me. But I know it when I'm writing the book. I have to find that connection with my characters um, in order to be able to really identify with them and know them and write their stories. I have to be those people. And I'm thinking with the, the since this is set in a particular historical setting, it also has your, these family connections. What was the research process for like? this like was there some outside research with some um also just talking to family members or or what was the process like for you um, there was absolutely no outside research except uh, the one thing i did research was eleanor roosevelt's favorite cake because they make a cake for eleanor roosevelt in the hopes that she comes to an event in a small town um that was the only kind of you know but real research that I did. The rest of it comes from my heart and from just having been a very good spy as a child. I loved listening. I was a listener. I was not a talker. And I loved especially listening to the grown-ups and their secrets. And I used to hear a lot of secrets. And one of the secrets I heard was about my Aunt Harriet, who was a nice girl from the Bronx who um, actually did some sneaking off to visit her boyfriend in Mississippi during the war before he was shipped out. And she came back married. And that was a source of great concern to the family because she was 18. And he was 18 at the time. And I always thought that was the most romantic thing I'd ever heard in my life, you know, at the age of six when I first heard it. And that story kind of resonated with me. And um, they had a very long and Wonderful marriage, it turns out. But the family was aghast when, when they got married at, at that early age. And, and so that was kind of the genesis of this. Oh, this is a great story. Oh, I do have to ask, what is Eleanor Roosevelt's favorite cake? I believe it's called Pink Clouds on Angel Food Cake. Hmm. <laughs> and I even got the recipe. Um, I, somehow, miraculously, I was able to Google all of this. It was really fun to find out something like that. But she, she appears in the book, and I adore, obviously, I adore Eleanor Roosevelt and what she stands for. And, and so I needed her to be present or not present in the book. But the, the idea of her is, is very much in the book throughout. Mm, very nice. Uh, could you share a, a, a bit of the book for us? Sure, I could, I could share the beginning. The, the thing about this book is that it's told... Um, in three different voices. The story unfolds in, in short increments. And the voices are those of Julie, who's age 11. And she tells a teeny bit of the story. And then her little sister, Martha, who's age six, is six, tells a little bit of the story. And then Bruno, the next door neighbor in Bell Beach, Long Island, he, he's 12. And he tells a little bit of the story. And, and then that would be one chapter. And then you go to the next chapter. And again, you hear Julie's version of something. Then you hear Martha's version of something. And then you hear Bruno's version of the same thing. And the trick was to make them all say something different because they all had some different perspective on the same event, much as my brother and I, you know, if you ask us something about our childhood, we would come to it with completely different views of what actually happened. And and so th this was a very important thing for me, that to get the structure right and to not repeat myself, um, to keep the story going. I couldn't repeat the, the what was happening. 
even though three different kids um, are telling the story. I'll, I'll read a couple of pages. The, the first chapter is called The Baby. And, and the first voice, as I said, is duly sweet, age 11. I'm the one who found her, a real live baby girl, and I saw her first. I saw the basket right over there on the steps of the New Children's Library. A tiny little baby, all by herself in that basket. She was so brave, though. She wasn't even crying. I just wanted to hold her a while. I didn't mean to take the baby. Then the second segment is Martha, age six. That's her little sister. You know what I thought? I thought it was a doll, and I don't even like dolls. Then something happened, which is this. It moved and made a gurgle, a gurgle, a sound. Help, I screamed, help. Then Julie was holding it, and their noses were touching. And you know what else? There was a little green pig inside the basket. Here's your nice pig, I said. Look at Piggy dancing. The baby only looked at Julie. She didn't love her pig, a poor little pig. So I put it in my pocket for a while. And then Bruno is the next voice. It was August 31. That's when everything happened. That morning, while they were working, I wrote my parents a goodbye note. It was my first time writing a goodbye note, but I like what I wrote. I like how it shows my thoughtful side. Here are my exact words. Dear Mom and dear Dad, I have to go somewhere immediately, but not forever. Can't say more sorry. Your son, Bruno. P.S. Don't worry. I'm not running away from home. I would never do that. Don't worry. See what I mean? Thoughtful. I left it on my pillow along with a nice little picture of me for my parents to look at. Then, at exactly 7.45 a.m., I was ready to leave. So I left. And then it goes on. He goes on um, for another couple of pages, which I, don't, I won't read right now. But those are the three different voices, basically, in the story. I'm I'm curious in the in the process of uh, writing this book uh, because you're doing these three different voices. Um, when you were actually writing the book, uh, did you take each chapter at a time and and think of the three voices, or did you take one character? The way I write is that I go piece by piece by piece, and I don't allow myself to go on. A lot of people can go to the end and then come back to the beginning or go in the middle or write a chapter seven and then go back to chapter two. I don't do it that way. I have to have perfection on the first page, the first word, the first sentence before I allow myself to go, go on. So I would do a voice, a second voice and a third voice. And until I nailed all three voices in that chapter, I didn't allow myself to continue. It's just my process. It's, it takes a long time because I'm, you know, very fastidious about it, and uh, took me many years to write this book. Many, many. I'm curious because I know every every writer, like you said, every writer has their own process, and like you said, this this is what works for you. Right, my brain doesn't work that way. It doesn't jump. And I have to be very consistent in what I do, and very focused. And I also do a lot of reading out loud when I write. There's a lot of drama here at my desk because I have to hear how it sounds. Um, and something can look really good on when you see it on the screen, and then you read it out loud, and you're stumbling over your words, and you say, but it looks so good on the screen, and it took me two months to write that sentence, and I'm keeping it. But then when you read it out loud, it still doesn't work, and eventually you have to fight it and lose it. You know, you fight yourself a lot. Reading aloud is a big part of the process for me. 
Now, I know you've written for both, uh, you know, chapter books, novels, and uh, picture books as well. And I'm wondering, is there a different, because uh, there's, there's such a different style of writing, a different audience, too, uh, and, and just uh, not not just in terms of length. So is there a different uh, way you approach writing when you go from one to another, or is it just a matter of that you have the story and you just sort of think it through uh, like you, you do sort of step by step? I think it's more a matter of voice for me. I, I, there's a certain voice that I have for picture book writing, and whether it's a, a, an amusing voice in some picture books or a more serious voice, um, it, it's just a voice more than the story itself. Um, and it just comes out novel or picture book. But picture book writing is more like, write, for me, it's more like writing a poem um, because the, the you have to chop away and chop away and chop away and to get to the bare bones of your story. What I do is, is, is write it, which takes forever. And then I start chipping away at it to see what I can leave out. Because a lot of a picture book for me is what's between the lines, what you don't say. And you have to be able to write so clearly that someone else can see it. Of course, I don't draw the pictures, so I don't have that advantage. So I have to be so particular with my word choices and with my rhythms. And again, I'm, I'm dramatizing a lot when I write. I'm reading out loud constantly. And I write the picture books that I would have wanted to read to my children when they were little. And I write the novels that I would have wanted to read when I was eight or nine or ten years old. So that's, that's kind of in the background. But I never think about my audience really when I'm writing. I, I'm only thinking about, God, will I ever get the sentence right? <laughs> or, God, why do I call myself a writer? What a phony. What a phony. Don't, don't let them know. You can't, don't know what you're doing. Don't let anyone know that. <laughs> <laughs> I think all writers have that, that nagging voice in the back of their heads, you know, um, what am I doing? And, but I think the idea of writing for a book that you think would be something that you would want to read, you know, mm. as a child is, is a, is a great way to sort of, uh, think about, you know, you know, how do I know if this is working? Is this something I would want to read myself? Right. And with picture books in the back of my mind, and certainly I don't think about it when I'm writing, but I know a very important value that I have is writing up. Even though picture book audiences are young, I, I write up all the time. I never, never write down or cutesy. I, I can't stand cutesy. And I also know that grown-ups are reading it to them, and so that you need to kind of address the grown-up audience at the same time and, and, and have the respect for the young ones and the older people who are reading it to them very often at the same time. And, and that's very important to me, not to talk down to children, for sure, and not to talk down to the adults who might be reading it to the children. Oh, yes. I always felt that a children's book has to be a good book uh, mm -hmm. to start with, not just good enough for children, but it should be a good book for anybody. That's exactly right. It has to. I mean, I think a, a beautiful picture book is just the most beautiful thing in the world. It, it, it announces itself to any audience. It doesn't. The publishers make it a picture book. Okay. They put pictures in it, and they, you know, they call it a picture book. But I think it, it could be a short story, or it could be a poem, um, if it had a different format. And I think that of all of my books, all of my, you know, that we call them. I think um, the summer we found the baby had is very, very adult in the, in a lot of the themes that are in there. 
about love and death and war and moving on. And there's a lot of really heavy stuff there. That And looking back, I could see this as a movie. For example, where one of these three characters is looking back on this particular summer with that, you know, telescopic lens and for an adult audience, because I think there's a lot of adult messaging in here. Um, but it's, you know, it's a children's book. It's marketed as a children's book. But I also think it, it could be, if it weren't marketed as a children's book, children's book, it could be an adult memoir as well. It's, it sounds very intriguing. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Well, good. I hope you do. <laughs> now, the the book you uh, chose as one of your particular favorite uh, children's books that you've enjoyed reading is uh, Dear Mr. Henshaw by Beverly Cleary, uh, who is actually, uh, I believe, if I looked it up, she's uh, 104 years old and still with yeah. us. Um, also, isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, this book was published in 1983, and it was awarded the Newbery in 1984. Um, and I think it's a familiar book to a lot of people, but those who haven't had a chance to read it yet, can you talk a little bit of what uh, Dear Mr. Henshaw is about? It, it's about a boy who starts writing letters to an author, and and very, very slowly, he opens up about his life. Um, it starts, um, like the very first page, he's in second grade. And the very first line is, Dear Mr. Henshaw, my teacher read your book about the dog to our class. It was funny. We licked it. Your friend, Lee Botts, the boy. And then the next letter is, let's see, uh, May 12th. So the next winter, December 1. Now he's a third grader. And he writes, Dear Mr. Henshaw, I am the boy who wrote to you last year when I was in the second grade. Maybe you didn't get my letter. This year, I read the book I wrote to you about the way, about called Ways to Amuse a Dog. It is the first thick book with chapters that I have read. The boy's father said city dogs were bored, so Joe could not keep the dog unless he could think up seven ways to amuse it. I have a black dog. His name is Bandit. He is a nice dog. If you answer, I get to put your letter on the bulletin board. My teacher taught me a trick about friend. The I goes before E so that at the end it will spell end. Keep in touch, T-U-T-C-H. Your friend, Lee Botts. And then the next one is, I am in the fourth grade now, da-da-da-da-da. But as the letters go on, he opens up more and more, and he's from um, a divorced home. He misses his dad so much. His dad is absent, but, you know, he thinks he's going to come. And, and it's about his pain and, and his, his real pain. But you never feel sorry for him. He's very relatable. He, he doesn't have attitude. I love this kid. He doesn't have a snarky attitude. He's not. He's like just every kid. And I, I, I just love that about him. I, I read it again yesterday for the purpose of this podcast while I was on my exercise bike. And, and I was laughing and crying at the same time and i haven't read it in years actually but but it had the same effect on me maybe more of an effect even now but it, it, i think she's a genius i just think she's a genius beverly cleary in how she understands a, a boy's heart a child's heart and how she gets the parents also she just gets the parents she keeps them off stage but not too off stage and you, you just see them through his eyes, but you also see them through your adult eyes as real people, not cardboard people. 
Um, it, it's it's very interesting to read Beverly Cleary. So I, I really admire her a lot. She's got soul, and and her books have soul, and this book really has soul. And she does use an interesting, it's it's something you don't see too often in, in children's book, this narrative device of he starts out writing uh, letters, and he does it throughout the thing, but he also does it uh, eventually switches to a diary entry. And I think he goes back to letters, too. And that's not something you see too much in children's book. Well, particularly days nobody writes letters anymore. Uh, so I'm not sure you'd see that um, more currently. But it's just a, I think in this case, the way of telling the story uh makes an impact in in the story that's being uh, mm-hmm. told. So I don't think it could be told any other way except by through letters and these diary entries rather than a traditional narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just beautifully done. It's very accessible. And he's a very accessible kid. You never, you're never not rooting for him, but you're not necessarily feeling sorry for him. He, he's not mm-hmm. a, you know, it's not a pity party for this boy. And I like that. I really do. Even as a grown-up, it's not a pity party. But, you know, so you're not just, you, you just feel for him, but in the, in the best possible way. You know he's going he's gonna to be okay. This will grow up to be a nice man. <laughs> I know the, the one relationship that he, he goes back to constantly is the one on his mind is between him and his dad, um, yeah. who is not there. and But it is somebody who's on his mind a lot. And it changes as the novel goes on how he feels or expect his expectations of who his dad is and and what's going to happen with him and his dad and that's kind of a big part of the the things that he's thinking about as the book goes on right right and it, it, you know it's very painful and and his father you know you don't like his father necessarily but you kind of get it you get who he is and you get who the mom is and i really appreciate that cuz they're they're real people, really flawed. Everybody's flawed. And nobody's too perfect. The mother is not perfect. She's pretty perfect. Um, but she's not perfect, threateningly perfect. I hate when I see parents, and I could, I won't go into books where I see parents who are too perfect. Because I'm a parent. I had parents. Um, who's perfect? I mean, nobody's perfect. And I, I just... I resent it when I read about parents who get it all. It's too understanding. The parents in this book are, they're, you know, just not so perfect. Um, and I like that. I like, I like that. They're honest. They're honest people trying their best. And I like that. I'm thinking even Lee at the beginning of the thing when he's given these 10 questions, Mr. Henshaw asks him to answer, and he is extremely reluctant uh, and has to be forced into it and lets Mr. Henshaw know very um, is very upfront about how much he hates doing this. Right. I like that. I like that he does that, and I like that he resents it. Um, but he's doing it because he, he resents it, but he likes doing it also. He's liking the attention, I think. And his mother miraculously gets that and won't have the TV fixed, <laughs> which is, is pretty cool. Um, I don't know that I would have had the willpower to do that, you know, with my kids, not to have the TV fixed if, if uh, they weren't doing their homework. I, you know, it's just, I'm not sure. I would like to think I would have been that tough on them, but I don't know. She was right. And his loneliness was palpable also. I recognize that. Yeah. And I, I love... I loved how he just kind of eased into opening up 
He didn't mean to open up. It reminds me of that book, um, Love That Dog, in a way. I don't know if you know that one. I, I do not know. Oh, it's wonderful. It's poems. Um, uh, Sharon Creech, Love That Dog. Look it up. It's just a gem. It's another gem about a boy who doesn't want to write a poem. And his teacher makes him, you know, write poems. And, and each one is, you know, he gets less and less resentful as the book goes on. And you learn that he's hurting also. He's learning about a dog who died, um, his dog who died, um, learning to, you know, write about it and express his feelings about it. But, it, you know, it takes the whole book. Um, and and uh, it's the same, the, the, like the little openings that happen. I love that. It's, it's you know, opening the heart, these kids' hearts so that they can talk about what's hurting them. And in many ways, it's about Lee becoming um, a writer. He wants to be a writer, and he doesn't realize at first that these questions that Mr. Henshaw are his mm. way to get Lee to think about what it actually means to be a writer. And right. uh, and so it's a process for him. And, and just, just how he uses, I'm just wanting to think about how he uses those questions to show him what it takes to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. He, he does. But I, I think that's, you know, really toward the end of the book that that begins to happen, that he sees that. And I love when he has a, a lunch with, with an author, an old lady author, <laughs> you know, how he gets to have that lunch with her. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's he's so proud. Uh, he feels so good about himself. Um, and that, that, of course, is so satisfying to see a, a kid or an adult um, who finally begins to see the, his own value. Uh, that's just beautiful. And very subtly, she doesn't, uh, if she doesn't hit you over the head with it, Beverly Cleary. Well, I know part of that luncheon, the big moment for him is when the, 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 the author tells him that you are an author, um, which is the first time he thinks of himself, you know, I am. Uh, and he realizes that, oh, he maybe he is a writer after all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty wonderful. Yeah, and I'm thinking so many of us, you know, we're in these sort of endeavors that validation is not something that just kids need, but I think all of us need oh, at I'm- some point, you know, <laughs> just to know our, if we're on the right track, you know, getting yeah. that back. Yes, definitely. Uh, validation. And yes, I agree. And you're talking to about the, the, her subtlety. I was thinking too about that. There's a side plot where uh, somebody's stealing his lunch and he creates this alarm to catch the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I thought was interesting, she, you might think the normal sort of thing was, of course, he catches it and there's a, a thing about that. But it turns out to be that wasn't the important thing. And she doesn't, she doesn't go there with that sort of plot. I, yeah, isn't it so interesting that we don't have a culprit here? We don't have a bad kid here. We just have the kid who overcomes and and kind of impresses everybody else. What a way to handle a bully. You know, if only we could do this in our lives every day, handle bullies so perfectly and without ugliness, without getting into the ugliness of bullying. Um yeah, I like that. I like that we never found out who it was who was taking his lunch. I hadn't remembered that from, you know, earlier readings of the book. But when I read it yesterday, I thought that it was very interesting because she, she's not, that's not what Beverly Cleary was going for, finding the culprit. It, it was about overcoming, you know, 
the culprit over over uh, not even overcoming the culprit i don't know uh what the right language would be but but dealing with it dealing with it in a a positive way and coming out in a positive with a positive light and feeling good about yourself not because you beat somebody up for taking your lunch but but because you did something that was really awesome you created something that was really awesome that made other people look at you in a different way um, he made a friend because of that because um, he built this whatever alarm system and so it's a real positive to come from without being physical, for example, or yelling at, at somebody. I think that's a gorgeous message for bullies. <laughs> I think, too, for other uh, writers as well, that she focuses on character, lets the character drive the plot rather than having a plot in mind, you know, the typical catch the bully or anything, but actually thinks about the character and what would happen driving the story rather than the plot driving the story. That's always where I am with my stories. I teach writing a lot um, to adults, and, and uh, they're always asking me questions about plot. And um, and I always have to say I don't know anything about plot, and it's true. I really don't know about plot. I can't, I can't tell you how I get a plot because everything comes from character for me. I care about my characters so much. Those are I, I really sit here and I worry about them, um, and... And I need to understand who they are. And whatever happens in the story happens because of who they are, not because of some plot I concoct. I, you know, I'm, I, I just don't do it that way. It happens because of who those characters are. And that's why I have to know my characters so intimately. I could tell you anything in the world about any of my characters, whether or not it's on the page. I just feel like I know them as if they're sitting here with me. Yeah, I don't do plot. I mean, if there's a plot in any of my stories, it's it's honestly, I, I didn't make it up. It's, it just happens. <laughs> it's not because I thought about it a whole lot. Um, it just happens. It's about people and feelings and uh, and relationships. Always. Always. No matter, and the stuff that they're doing, just the stuff that they're doing, I don't really, it doesn't matter to me what they're doing. They could be fishing or they could be finding babies, but it's about how those characters deal with what life throws at them that's i guess that's what i do and you think that the writing advice mr henshaw gives to him just to you know talk about the different you know those 10 questions and keeping mm -hmm. a diary for for young writers or anybody who wants to start out as writing might be a good way to start if as just to you know write about your, you know, what's going on in your life right now. Write about, write about what you know. Write about, it's the same old thing that, you know, people have been saying for decades and years and centuries. Write what you know. I only write what I know. I don't, I could never write an adventure story because I never had an adventure in my life. I don't want an adventure. I'm not, you know, that's not who I am. Um, I, I write about what I know, you know, and, um, and if I were suggesting how to start, you know, I would just start small in small increments, write about who was at breakfast this morning, you know, write about the breakfast table this morning or write about that. Take a picture of yourself. I liked looking at pictures from my childhood and, you know, an eight year old version of Amy. And I look at the picture and I say, and I remember just looking at that picture. I remember so much about that moment in my life. 
where I was, who was there, who my teacher might have been that year, who my friends were, who my enemies were, how many fights I had with my brother, who the dog was in the house at that time, um, just by looking at a picture. And, and then I would tell my writer students, find a picture of yourself at age six with a, a family member and write the dialogue they were having. Just write dialogue, those two characters. A picture of you and a picture of your sister. And and write the dialogue. And that would be an assignment for my class. And it, what it does is just bring you back to something. And maybe you expand on it and maybe it becomes something like a story and not just what happened. It can, you know, turn into fiction, but but it brings you back. Those are the, those are the ways I would get people started. Just doing small, small moments um, of, of your life from whatever time you want. It could be yesterday or it could be, you know, 50 years ago, if you're old like me. Just sort of think about where you are or where you've been and start from there and see where it takes you. And don't get fancy. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Simple, simple, simple. Just get the words on the page. and uh, mm -hmm. Just yeah. get the words on the page. You can always revise everything. Uh, all I do is revise, um, you know, Revise, revise, revise. You write it, you throw it out, you start all over. You write it, you throw it out, you start all over. <laughs> that's the process. Yeah, well, that's good advice. That's good advice. Well, Amy, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me both about um, your own work and your own process and for giving me a chance to reread uh, Mr. Henshaw. I've read it a while back and I got a chance to read it again and to talk to me about it today. You're so welcome. This is lovely. And uh, thank you for inviting me. You can find Amy's website at www.amyhess.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.